Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in crime and punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. All right. We have with us today David Azarad. He is assistant professor of government and a research fellow at Hillsdale College here at Hillsdale's campus in Washington, D.C., where we record many of our podcasts. He was previously director of the B. Kenneth Simon Center for Principles and Politics at the Heritage Foundation. He has taught before at American University and at the University of Dallas, where he earned his doctorate in politics. Our topic today is an essay that he recently did at the uh, Law and Liberty site of the Liberty Fund. It's called Social Justice Rights. I will mention also uh, an essay he wrote last year, kind of history of identity politics at the Heritage Foundation, if people want to look it up, because David is one of the best, most astute commentators on the on the identity politics, the political correctness phenomenon of the last several years. The report was called The Promises and Perils of Identity Politics. I want to single that out for our listeners. That is at the Heritage Foundation site. Uh, but we'll move on to this essay that we have here, Social Justice Rights. Welcome, David. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark, for having me. All right. Well, the first thing I would say is the title, Social Justice Rights. And social justice, those are the big words, but I think actually the word rights. It's not R-I-G-H-T-S, is it? No, although there's a lot of rights that they're claiming. Uh, <laughs> this is about the, the performative aspects of identity politics, to look at it through the lens of religion and to mostly focus on in what my view is the main hypocrisy of it is that the contrition, the sacrifice, is the wokeness is mostly performative. You look at the people who preach identity politics the loudest, elite white liberals, they tend to live in very white neighborhoods to send their, skills, their kids to very white schools with not a lot of diversity. They then cheat to get their kids into college. Mm -hmm. I have yet, I mean, you've been in the academy longer than I have, but I have yet to hear of a professor give up her tenured position to make way for a person of color to take her position. So they demand more diversity, but I've yet to see them actually sacrifice on its behalf. Uh, they're mostly preaching an ethic of, it seems to me, diversity for thee, but not for me. Right. And they get away with it. So the essay is focusing on some of the rights and exposing the hypocrisy of those who preach it the loudest. And you really do opt in the beginning for a, a language, a religious language of rights, R-I-T-E-S. You talked about uh, people who uh, find their suffering is sanctified. 
Uh, you mention that their purported oppressors must, quote, atone in perpetuity for the sins of their fathers. And so, I mean, we talk about identity politics and political correctness, but you're, 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 you're moving more into, again, a religious moral language in order to describe the phenomenon. So I don't like the term identity politics because I find it deeply misleading insofar as it's not a politics of identity insofar as many people are not entitled to have an identity of which they're proud. So you, for example, Mark, seem to me a, a very straight white male and a Christian at that. These are not identities that are affirmed, honored, celebrated. You don't get special exhibits at museums because you belong to oppressor groups and therefore that is not an identity that gets to be affirmed. The only identities we celebrate are those of so-called oppressor, oppressed identity groups. You know the roster, women, LGBTQ, people of color. Uh, although even there, I, I always love to bring up the example of Mormons. I mean, if there is one group that has been mistreated in American <laughs> history, and I don't know of another group that had an extermination order issued by the government against them. Or a leader lynched. Yes. And yet uh, they don't count as a victimized identity group. So the, the how much suffering you've gone through is applied selectively. And then the Jews, it's interesting, are increasingly being pushed out of identity politics. Linda Sarsour said that Jews were no longer welcome at the Women's March because mm -hmm. they're white Jews. So their whiteness trumps their Judaism and they have too much privilege and the horrors of the Holocaust are somehow been effaced at this point. So the, the, the criteria of oppression is applied uh, selectively. And so I don't particularly like that term. And I, I think it's, I haven't found a better replacement. I, I will, uh, than identity politics, than identity politics. But uh, you're right. It's not, it's, it's not poly. It's, it's too, it's too, as he, as he point out in this, it's too contradictory. It's too inconsistent. It's incoherent. It, it holds together on other grounds than political and even intellectual grounds. You, you actually say at the beginning, you call identity politics, quote, the great intellectual disorder of our age. An intellectual disorder can't really come out as a coherent politics. What, what, do, you, what do you mean by it's an intellectual disorder? Well, I, I view it as the reigning ideology of our age. And you're, you're, I was, you're right to, to emphasize the the problem with the term politics do so it's it's not about identity and it's politics may not be the best lens to think about it there's profound religious echoes in it and all i meant to say with that sentence was that i, I think ours is you know matthew iglesias coined a great term he said we're going through the great awakening <laughs> um he came up with that yeah. a few years ago and one That's has good. seen a real intensification of the hysteria around issues of identity politics in the past six, seven years. I mean, some work has been done identifying the period after Obama's reelection as a turning point. Hmm. And it seems to be a confluence of factors. Um, one was Twitter reaching a critical mass and creating an echo chamber that allows the hysteria to be amplified amongst the elites. Another one was Obama being unshackled and not needing to worry about re-election and evolving on gay marriage, the court giving us a Obergefell. Mm -hmm. um, and we've seen a real intensification of uh, the cultural wars in the past few years. And I think we're in the midst of this, we're in the grips of this hysteria 
over issues surrounding identity politics and that it uh, ours is the age of identity or the the age of claiming to be a victim and to be oppressed on behalf of that. It's the, the lens through which we process our politics. It ends up being too, you know, the standard according to which we judge America. I mean, there are echoes of roles here that we seem to have accepted at a society that the measure of America being America is how well women, people of color and the LGBTQ are faring. I mean, look at Trump's obsession with the black and Hispanic unemployment rate. Right. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that, of course, but everyone seems to accept but that that's the measure, the standard according to which we should judge America, mm-hmm. rather than a conception of how are all citizens faring and to not look at it all the time through the lens of sex, race, and sexual orientation. Uh, an interesting thing that you say is to the identitarians, white, male, and straight cannot form identity groups because they sit atop the structures of power. Now, the interesting thing is why then do so many of those people who sit atop the structures of power cooperate in the, the self-flagellation, in, in the guilt, in the acceptance of, of at least the putative acceptance of, of punishment? Why do they go along with it? Hey, I'm on the top. I can do whatever I... Anyway. Well, I think they do feel guilt. I, I think there is a sense, uh, if you spend enough, enough time with people in the academies, some elites, that there is a genuine sense of guilt for what America has done in the past to certain groups. Uh, what I point out to return to what I said is they go along with it in a performative manner, but they end up continuing to live lives of bourgeois comfort. Uh, they don't sacrifice all that much on behalf of these sacred oppressed identity groups. And so I find it, it's a way to assuage your guilt that doesn't cost you very much, which is quite convenient if you're, <laughs> if you're at the top of society or living a pretty comfortable life and have this gnawing sense of guilt. Indeed. You prefer, really, you, really, you borrow another term from an essay that you're responding here to, to here called sacrificial politics. What are sacrificial politics? So Molly McGrath is a professor of philosophy at Assumption College who wrote this essay for Law Liberty, and then we did a symposium around it, and I responded to it with my essay, Social Justice Rights. Uh, She proposes this term, sacrificial politics, to describe identity politics. And there's some value in the term. Uh, My one reservation uh, is that She says that it's a form of politics in which there are sacred groups whose sacredness derives from the fact that they as a group have been oppressed. So any one member individual need not himself have been oppressed. You just need to belong to a group that claims to be oppressed. And then on behalf of these groups, society needs to sacrifice. And there's some value in that term, but ultimately... Uh, to return to what I just said, I just don't find that the sacrifices are convincing by those who preach this the loudest. And that, that to me is the thing I can't get over is, is the performative aspect of all of this, the hypocrisy. And, and this is why you say that while there are Christian echoes in all of this with forms of penance, of confession, of, of guilt, and the acknowledgement of victims, you think that those 
there, that if there are Christian echoes here, if there are roots that we're getting pretty far from them because so much of this is just looking performative? It's more than that. Here's the way I would put it. I don't think that identity politics could have taken root in a non-Christian soil. Um, that being said, I hesitate to go too far, as some others have done, in interpreting identity politics as a transmogrification of Christianity. Um, there are I, I'm stuck by the struck rather by what I see as four very important differences. One is that original sin is not imputed to all of mankind, but only to the oppressor bad groups, white men, straight people. The second is, and more importantly, there is no promise of redemption, forgiveness, reconciliation. Uh, identity politics is a religion of hate. Christianity is a religion of love. You also have the fact that as I mentioned, Christianity is quite demanding in terms of what Jesus asks you to do if you are to follow in his ways. Whereas identity politics doesn't demand all that much of you beyond the faux contrition and, you know, saying a few platitudes. And if you're, say, for example, a big corporation, you fly the gay flag during Gay Pride Month, uh, you stand with North Car against North Carolina because of their bathroom bill, but then, of course, you make billions of dollars in China and turn a blind eye to the organ harvesting and the, the mistreatment of Uyghurs. So it doesn't really demand all that much of you. And then lastly, and most paradoxically, for all of the denunciations of the evils of white people and of white male, the identitarians don't really want to cast them away once and for all. They remain obsessed with uh, being around them. So. You know, we've witnessed this very strange phenomenon now, the rise of what has been called neo-segregationism, where you're seeing minority students say, we want to go to a university that is not just black or and not to an HBCU or we don't have Hispanic-only universities, but then we want to have segregated safe spaces to be with our own kind. So we want to be around white people, but then have the opportunity to escape and avoid them on our own terms with segregated dorm rooms, cafeterias, commencement ceremonies, so on and so forth. Ditto with the schools so and the neighborhoods. We want to make sure that they're all integrated. So white people on the one hand, are, are we are told, are horrible, they're responsible for Jim Crow, the Trail of Tears, slavery, the, the list goes on. But yet we need to keep them around and sprinkle them around the country to make sure that everything is integrated. You can't both demonize something and then want to be around it all the time. Hmm. Right. When you said a moment ago that Christianity is a religion of love, sacrificial politics are, are a religion of hate, uh, you know, I thought that, okay, look, identity politics, the rationale for identity politics is a lifting of repression, right? We recognize the oppression that has taken place, and identity politics are something of an antidote to them. We acknowledge the exploitation, the, the group uh, forms of, of, of victimization that have taken place. And so one would think that as identity politics makes progress through an institution that the atmosphere of that institution should improve. 
Can you think of any place in which identity politics have become the, the status quo where people are happier? Are college campuses happier places today than they were 30 or 40 years ago? Of course not, because I, I'm glad you posed, you posed this question. The most misleading thing about identity politics is the kumbaya rhetoric. The fluff of, oh, we just want to eliminate oppression and create an America where we can all get along. So if you look beyond the colorful mural of identity politics, the nice Benetton ad of all oppression is over, we all get along, and you look at the policies they promote and the rhetoric they deploy in service of their political project, that's another fundamental contradiction. So they're basically saying the way to heal the racial wounds of the past in America, which are very real, is not to adopt MLK's message of love, forgiveness, and reconciliation and to preach brotherhood. No, it's to demand that we obsess over race all the time, that in our laws and in our policies, we have permanent racial preferences everywhere. This is Michelle Alexander's, uh, this is how she closes her book, The New Jim Crow that we constantly excoriate one race, demand that they learn their place, uh, learn to flagellate themselves all the time. And supposedly, if we do that long enough, then one day we're all going to get all we're all going to get along. But, you know, you don't need a PhD in psychology to realize that once hatred takes hold of the soul, it doesn't leave there easily especially outside of an explicitly Christian context that preaches forgiveness, love, and reconciliation. MLK could forgive. Ta-Nehisi Coates cannot, nor does he want to. I remember uh, a few years ago, Rusty and I were walking along, and it was the case of that, that figure in Kentucky. Uh, she was that, that civil servant who refused to sign same-sex marriage, same -sex marriage certificates and the the governor and she, she was actually hauled into court judge jim bunning the old baseball player he just hammered her and i remember seeing on on bill maher's show he shows a picture of her and she looked you know a little a little worn out she she looked uh, uh sort of that that appalachian america and he just shows the picture and everyone starts laughing and i, I mentioned this to rusty and i said why are they so vicious? They, they, they can't just say, look, you got to sign it or we got to move you out of the job. We'll, 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 we'll even transfer you somewhere else. But the, the nastiness that they poured upon her, and he, he said, well, some people just are not to be forgiven. And I thought, wow, and yeah. You see it too in their victory, the lack of magnanimity. So, I mean, take the issue of gay marriage. I mean, they've completely won on this one. They hadn't finished their victory lap. What did they set out to do? We're going to go after the bakers, the florists, and the photographers That's right. and compel every last one of them in America not to serve gay clients, which they were already doing. They were already doing this mm -hmm. all along. Not to hire them, which th they did, but to require that they participate in a gay marriage that yeah. th they think violates their conscience. Why not try to accommodate them? Why not be gracious? And magnanimous in your victory. They're not. You know, Ian Tuttle once wrote a fantastic line uh, in an essay in National Review. He said that uh, progressives have won the cultural wars 
And they're now roaming the countryside shooting survivors. <laughs> well, do you remember the day of the Obergefell decision? That night, the White House was illuminated in rainbow colors. They, 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 they turned it into a, a billboard. And I, and I thought, look, this is a very controversial decision. Many Americans are despondent over this. Do you really have to rub their noses in yes. the mud? Yes. You, you're going to step on them and say, eat it, guys. Uh, even worse, I mean, the gloating uh, over over this. And, and you know, I, I thought, OK, this is not this is not going. We're, we're going to move very quickly to something else here. And that that's well, why? 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 Why can't you just say, OK, this is this is this is a good thing. We're going to move on and we're just going to accept. I mean, they have a, a pretty simple moral framework through which they process reality, which posits that the one unforgivable evil is bigotry. Uh, you can overcome having killed someone, being a meth dealer, having abused your kids. These are forgivable sins in America. The one line that the elites have drawn, the identitarians have drawn, is to be a bigot. That's what we don't forgive. And they view these people, the ones who cling to the traditional definition of marriage, as being animated by bigotry. There is no attempt to recognize that most of them are not, that there are reasonable, non-bigoted arguments on behalf of the state not recognizing gay marriage. They view them as malicious people, and therefore they ought to be persecuted and driven out of the public square. And the promise, of course, is that if we do that, then we'll all harmoniously get along. If you said to an identity politician that the harmony you aspire to, the love you profess really is there in, in, in Jesus, the Father, the, 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 the crucifixion, the resurrection, salvation, it's, it's there. What, what would they, are, are, are they openly anti-religious, anti, I know they're sort of anti-clerical in some ways, well, but are I'm, they? I'm Jewish, so I yeah, don't yeah, know yeah. that. I, 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 I might direct. I, I know, I know. <laughs> or, or if you offered. No, I'm, if, I'm if joking. You, no, no, no. I, 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 when I was thinking, when I was saying that, I was thinking about other, uh, another explicitly religious vision of harmony in any, any of the world's major religions, how would they respond? But I mean, I, I think you must know this better than me because you work at First Things and you follow this most closely. You know, a lot of Christianity has gone woke in, in recent years. I mean, when I walk around Washington, D.C., I mean, half of the churches I see fly the gay flag and say that all here are welcome. Um, so I, I, I think they can tolerate Christianity in the same way that they can tolerate corporate America so long as it shows due deference to wokeness. Mm -hmm. The problem lies with uh, traditional Christianity, with a Christianity whose core has not been hollowed out and replaced with this wishy-washy, you know, yeah. love of women, minorities, and homosexuals and others. But, but, but David, is there a special problem, a special issue with Judaism? With the Jews, I mean, is it Israel? Is it, I mean, Judaism, they, like Linda Sarsour, no Jews. What, what is, is there a Jewish angle worth exploring here? I, I don't 
I don't think so. I mean, the left has obviously been souring on Israel for a while now, because if you look at it through the prism of identity politics, it's a wealthy, white Western country oppressing noble brown Muslim people. And then uh, that simplifies things pretty readily when <laughs> you look at it through that lens and you know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. So the left has been moving away from identity politics. And I mentioned the example uh, from, from Israel, and uh, it remains to be seen uh, how much longer Jews can remain part of the coalition of the oppressed. Uh, I wouldn't bet on it. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, American Jews have, uh, I think, are growing disillusioned with the left, but are not yet ready to embrace the right. That has been yeah. my experience. And I would say that becoming a conservative or identifying with the Republican Party is a two-step process. Once you need, first of all, you need to realize that the left is no longer a home for you. I think many American Jews are there. But then there's a second step that you need to be ready to join the deplorables. And uh, I, because I, there's no middle ground. Yeah. There's no there. You, you can't sit on the fence. The, the left will not allow it. Us or them. Yeah. With us or against us. Yeah. So. So I don't yeah. think they're there yet. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if you asked a, a, an identity politician, why are you so angry? Ultimately, it would come down to the profession of because I care so much. How couldn't you be angry? Look at the oppression in America, the systemic oppression across the board of women and minorities. You know, the, in this regard, identity politics is well at home in the left. I find that the left in all its varieties is anchored in outrage. Conservatism properly understood should be anchored in gratitude, in a sense of gratitude for the blessings of we've received from our ancestors for belonging to a particular people, to a particular country. The left always begins with a deep dissatisfaction, a disgust at the injustice of the status quo. And when it looks at the past, it doesn't see the great deeds of the fathers, it sees their sins first and foremost. Afterwards, it can acknowledge some good, but it, it is anchored in the outrage. And uh, it judges the present and the past through you know, an impossible utopian standard of that they somehow either will say, or even if they don't say it, somehow believe in the background, we can reach one day where all will be well here on earth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, the left has that vision of harmony at the same time that you note there is a, there's a fusionism. The, you know, the, the right had its fusionism during, during the, the, the Cold War. The left has a different kind of fusionism. I'm coming to quote a sentence that you write here. Sacrificial politics asks us to believe that white Cuban aristocrats, brown Guatemalan day laborers, and black Lusophone Brazilians are all Hispanic brethren, that homosexual men and lesbians who tend to segregate themselves into different social settings and bars are all members of an, quote, LGBTQ community, that native black Americans, Hutu and Tutsi, Rwandese immigrants and second generation Caribbean Americans are all African Americans, that all women married and single form a sisterhood, and that all these disparate groups are harmonious, harmoniously united. Now, we've seen the right fusionism breaking up. It, it, it's broken up, I think. How long will this left progressive identity politics fusionism 
hold together. So long as the Kahneman enemy is there to bind them together. So what kept the rights fusionism going? Communism. And then, you know, what bewilders me is that it took yes. almost 30 years after the fall of communism for the cracks really to start showing the fusionist alliance. Yeah. What keeps this mad alliance going of these groups that have nothing in common and in many cases really don't like one another? Uh, you know, one small example, uh, not a lot of research has been done on this, but native black Americans and African immigrants to the U.S. don't get along all that well. They don't have much in common. They don't intermarry. They don't live together. They're resentful of one another for, you know, the native black Americans think that the African immigrants are getting affirmative action, which they don't deserve. And yet we're supposed to believe that, you know, they're all in this together. They're all equally pressed. So I would say that this is going to last so long as they have a common enemy, i.e. the reified straight white man that binds them together. And the more the weaker the enemy becomes, the more the internal contradictions and the cracks will begin to show in the coalition and the more they're going to start turning against one another. I mean, this is the perpetual dream of the right on this issue is, you know, look at all the incoherences. So now the, you know, the TERFs are finding are fighting the trans exclusionary radical feminists are fa fighting the transsexuals over should men who identify as women play in sports and conservatives are jubilating, saying, alas, the crack up has arrived. Uh, I, I think it hasn't arrived yet. I, I, I feel we're going to have this for <laughs> quite some time. It's it's very, very strong. And the blandishments are are so, so patent that I think to see a real breakup, then the breakup will only happen when they have completely won. As long as they can hold up, you know, Donald Trump or, uh, you know, uh, uh, someone like uh, uh, some villain, some demon, you know, Mr. Zimmerman in Florida, whatever figurehead you can create, it, it'll, it'll, hold, it'll hold the group together, especially if you've still got numbers of, you know, most... Most of the super wealthy, uh, I mean, super duper wealthy are, are white in this country. You can point to things like that. Women get many more undergraduate and graduate degrees than men do. Medical school is now 50-50, male, female, law school is 50-50. Uh, and but yet- Mark, None of this matters. What matters is the wage gap. So <laughs> you only focus on the disparities that cut against women, minorities, or people of color. And you ignore all the other ones where white men, straight people don't fare well. So you realize that the, the purported, you know, because another way in which this project presents itself in a reasonable light is say, no, we don't want to eliminate any groups. We don't hate anyone. We just want to eliminate disparities. You know, if we didn't have sexism in America, you would expect women more or less to be 50% of everything and men to be more or less 50% of anything. And any area where that isn't the case, you're not allowed to apply to in invoke biology, different interests, hormones, brain chemistry. There's only one explanation. It has to be sexism. And therefore, you push in all these realms. But I'm always amused that they never notice the disparities. You know, like you look at the, there's a sentencing length gap for the same crimes 
men receive longer sentences. Men are vastly overrepresented in terms of workplace accidents and deaths, in terms of suicides, in terms of motorcycle accidents, in terms of casualties and war. No one cares about that. You focus on the areas where women are supposedly suffering. All right, final prediction. Where are identity politics going to be 10 years from now? Or is Ooh. this is this a oh, that, vast, that, un- that, we have no idea. That, that's, a, that's a hard one. Um, I love to quote my favorite American philosopher, Yogi Berra, who said, I hate making predictions, especially about the future. Uh, <laughs> uh, Very good. Where is Very this good. going? Um, I, I don't know, but I fear for my country. I, I, I mean, I, I must tell you that, you know, if a foreign enemy had designs on weakening America, say the Chinese or the Iranians, I think you'd push this onto the country. Because one thing that will likely happen in the long run is some sort of a white backlash against this, that identity politics will end up creating what it claims to now be fighting and that I don't think exists in America strongly, namely a strong conception of white identity. Now, of course, they claim that that's what they're in the business of fighting. One did exist in the past in the time of Jim Crow. I don't think there is one today. And then you got to ask yourself, if we arrive at a point where we're no longer a republic of citizens, but a loose confederation of ethnic tribes, how do you still have a country? What keeps it going if every last group has now admitted that we're not all in this together? Uh, there is no friend, no sense of civic friendship. It's each ethnic group fighting for a slice of the pie. Well, how has this worked out in pretty much every country in the world with the, you know, the exception of Switzerland that is always held out as, you know, the one outlier is, oh, this is a perfect model for coexistence. Uh, I worry that this won't turn out well. And what pains me the most is that there are very few voices on the left who are pushing back against this. So there's a handful of intellectuals who've written timid books, Francis Fukuyama, Mark Lilla, saying identity politics is bad. You know, Bernie Sanders in the wake of the 2016 election said one question that the Democratic Party is going to need to to confront is whether or not we go beyond identity politics. And since then, he shut up and and has really, you know, uh, demonstrated that he's going to go along with the Wokies and not stand up to them. And so I'm not seeing sufficient voices that are pushing back against this. And what someone needs to do is to say, look, this is not a debate over whether or not you want to deal justly with groups that have been and maybe continue to be mistreated today. I mean, we're all Americans. We're all entitled to equal rights under equal laws. One side does not have a monopoly on the heart. One side does not have a monopoly on justice. But what identity politics does is it claims the exclusive mantle of justice. It says only we care about women, African-Americans, you name it. And if you're not with us, then you're against us. You know, Ibram Kendi, who's becoming the new Ta-Nehisi Coates of our age, says you're either a racist or an anti-racist. Am I allowed to use a Latin expression on the First Things podcast? Please. Tertium non datur. Uh, there's no third option. And that has to be rejected. One has to say, uh, of course, one can have sympathy for the well-being of all Americans, regardless of their sex, sexual orientation, race, class. But there has to be a better way of helping them than the divisive poison of identity politics. David Azarad, thank you. Thank you, Mark.
And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.